We're going to continue this morning our look at the prophecy of Joel. This what is called a minor prophet. The minor prophets are 12 books that follow the major prophets in your Bible. And so if you have uh, if you have a Bible, you can open it to the prophecy of Joel, the second chapter. It's Joel chapter 2, and I'll start reading in verse 18. So hear the word of God. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rear guard into the western sea. And the stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and the vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God. For He has given you the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you the abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, and the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is none else. And my people shall never again be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. You know, the book of Joel describes a horrific judgment that came upon the people of God. In the first chapter up into about the 11th verse of the second chapter, it describes this this invasion of locusts that came into the land and stripped the land bare. And it said that everything uh, was uh, diminished. Uh, The crops, there was no food uh, there, there was no uh, uh, grain offerings or wine offerings for the people to give in their cultic, their worship uh, observances. And there was no uh, uh, joy in the land. It was all stripped away. So the stripping of the land stripped away not only the food and their, their ability to worship the way they were supposed to, but it also stripped away their joy and their gladness. It took everything from them. And in verse verse 12 marks an amazing transition. And you see this very often. You know, a lot of us steer clear of the prophets because sometimes they're hard to understand. And they, are, they can be a little bit difficult to understand. But if you'll remember a few things, it can help you. When you're reading the prophets, look for their, their cycles. There are cycles in the prophets of judgment. And then there are cycles of promises of restoration. And you see it very clearly here where there's this tremendous judgment in the first chapter, part of the second chapter, and then a transition occurs where he he makes a change. He actually starts talking about the restoration. 
And he says in verse 12, Yet even now, declares the Lord, listen, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping, mourning, rend your hearts and not your garments. We looked at this last week. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord, for He is gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, relenting of evil. Who knows whether He will not turn, relent, and leave a blessing behind Him. So in verse 12, there's this shift, and God calls them back to Him. He says, repent and break your heart. Don't just put on an outward show of repentance. Oh, I'm so sorry. And I feel really bad about what I did, especially the fact that I got caught. He's saying, no, go down deeper. Look inside your heart and let your heart be broken by your sin, by what you have done. And then return to me because who knows if I won't extend grace to you. See, we're never to presume on grace, but at the same time we're to expect the grace of God. And then in verse 18, he picks it up and he says this, Then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning, this process of restoration. We don't like the judgment. Naturally, who wants to get hear all this stuff about judgment? But at the same time, and we love to talk about restoration, but you need both in order to understand the other. If you, don't, if you don't understand judgment, you're not going to appreciate, nor will you live in the reality of the restoration. And if you don't understand the restoration, the judgment will crush you. It will kill you and destroy you. And Christians especially seem to swing between these two poles. Uh, staying too much in judgment, God's mad at me, hates me, wants to destroy me, He's bringing judgment on me, or all the way over to grace where, oh, God's just a loving big grandfather in the sky with a long white beard, and I can just climb up into His lap, and He's just always, He's like a great uncle. He's not really the God who is described in Scripture. And you don't want to find a place in the middle, folks. The middle balance is no good in the Bible. What you find is 100% judgment. 100% God's grace and love. And where you find it perfectly meeting is at the cross of Christ. And those of us who run to that cross to find our judgment put on Christ and Christ's righteousness given to us. That's the story of the Bible in a nutshell. Even the Old Testament. And Joel talks about this. And so let's look at the, a couple things this morning. First of all, what is the grace, what I'm going to call the grace of jealousy. It says God was jealous. What does that mean? That can be a very disturbing thought, that God is jealous, that He has wrath, and that He's angry. We'll talk about that. What is the grace of jealousy? And then finally, uh, we'll look at how is this grace of jealousy expressed? How does He express uh, His jealous love for His people? Okay, so we'll look first at what is the grace of jealousy. Then the Lord became jealous for His land and had pity on His people. Verse 18. There's a dramatic shift and He goes from judgment to restoration. Restoration following His judgment on the land and on the people. And what He says, what He, what he uses here, this word jealousy, is what we call in theology an anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism. So 
what an anthropomorphism is, is, is when God says, I will, I will cover you or shelter you with my wings. Okay, God doesn't have wings unless you have a pretty vivid imagination. But what is he talking about? I will cover you with my wings. Well, that's an anthropomorphism. He's using, uh, I will stretch out my hand. Uh, it, the stench filled my nostrils, he says, or the smoke coming up from your sacrifices, burning my nose. It's so uh, uh, odious to me. It's so offensive to me. Uh, he says, I'm looking at you. My eyes are burning. My hands are flashing with lightning. What is he talking about? This is an anthropomorphism. God doesn't have hands. He doesn't have wings. He doesn't have nostrils like we... He's invisible. He's a spirit. But he uses language to describe human language to describe these things so that we can understand, so that we can relate to what he's talking about. And it's the same thing when he talks about an emotion like anger or hatred. He loved, es- uh, loved Jacob, but he hated Esau. And we think, well, gosh, how could God hate? I thought he'd loved. Well, he's using language to describe things that we can understand. Things like jealousy, like wrath, like anger. And these are called anthropopathisms. They're emotions. So just like using a human hands, uh, feet, fingers, arms, wings, he uses emotion as well. And so whatever it is, when he says he's jealous, whatever it is, it's way beyond anything that we would understand as jealousy. But he's giving it to us so that we can understand, in some sense, what he means by jealousy. What is jealousy? In human beings, in every one of us, folks, in us, jealousy is mixed with our sin and our selfishness and our self-protection and our need to control. And it can often turn into anger and rage. But with God, His jealousy is, look at what it says, He was jealous and had pity. Almost every time he talks about jealousy in the Bible, he's talking about jealousy mixed with love and pity. You see, there's no sin in God's jealousy. So when he is jealous, it's a protective love, not a controlling love. If any of you have, uh, and God forbid that any of you ladies have experienced domestic uh, violence, uh, had a husband that smacked you around or beat you up, or maybe you know somebody that had a husband or perhaps even a wife, or a parent who's very controlling, very domineering, very authoritarian. And uh, these people are often, if you go to them and say, why are you beating up your wife? Well, I love her so much. I'm jealous. I want to control. I want to possess. In human beings, jealousy can turn to anger and rage and become toxic and evil. But in God, His jealousy is always expressed in protection. He surrounds His people. He wants to protect them from that which hurts them. And there is no uh, uh, toxic possessiveness nor need to control in a way that would harm them. And that's the great difference. John Calvin said this, the jealousy of God, listen, is nothing else but the vehemence and ardor of His paternal love. You see, it's a pure, jealous love that wants to surround and protect and not let anything destroy or harm or hurt. And unlike human beings, when God extends that jealousy, it's not something that's going to hurt us. It's something that's actually going to gather us up 
and protect us. And we should look for it in that, in that way. How then is this grace of God's jealousy expressed in Joel, and I think in most of the Bible as well? In two ways, restoration, restoring what went wrong, and assurance. In other words, he's going to restore, but he's not just going to restore and then leave you or leave me without any comfort, without any assurance that his love is everlasting, that it will stay in place. It would be one thing for him to restore us and then us live our lives. And I know lots of Christians, in fact, I lived lots of my life and still do at times, wondering when the other shoe is going to drop. When is God going to get mad at me again and bring more judgment on me? And what he does is he restores us and in the gospel he assures us that that judgment that should have come to us passes over us on to Jesus Christ. And Jesus' righteousness, amazingly, is transferred and passed over to us. That is the story of the gospel. So what is this uh, grace of jealousy? Restoration. There's three things here. Restoration of provision, restoration of protection, and restoration of the past. Let's look at them real quick. Restoration of provision. What he talks about here in verse 19, I'm sending grain and wine and oil. You will be satisfied. I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. He's bringing back the provision that was lost to them from the locust. This physical, what we talked about last week, physical, spiritual, emotional, and psychological. You see, he just doesn't bring food back. He actually gives them food, but he replaces the joy and the gladness that goes along with it. The emotional and psychological needs were met along with the physical. The spiritual needs were... I'm sending grain and wine. This was not just an oil. This was not just food. This was what was necessary for them to worship. Imagine us not being able to do what we do on Sunday morning. Uh, our musical instruments are taken away. Uh, our, our, our ability to sing is removed. We don't have any wine or bread or oil to, to bake the bread so that we can have our sacrament of Holy Communion. Imagine that all of that is removed and along with it, all the joy that attends it. You see, He's going to restore the provision, but not just the physical needs. So often, I mean, gosh, folks, all we think about is our physical needs. We very rarely look below the surface and think about our emotional needs, our spiritual needs. We don't think about those things. We don't think about our psychological needs, that we need friendship, that we need companions in this world to make this journey, that we can't go it alone. That we need tenderness, we need love. We need somebody who will stand up and tell us, stop that, that's wrong, it's going to hurt you. Somebody whose jealousy is actually helpful and not harmful, yes? Do you see? God addresses all of these in the restoration of the wine and the oil. And He says, you will be satisfied. In other words, your emotions and your psychological makeup, you will be satisfied. There will be a deep and abiding satisfaction in the people of God who have been restored. I think I told you last week, I'm very, I had to, I deactivated my Facebook yesterday. Because there's so much hate on Facebook right now, I can't do it anymore. 
And I'm not telling you to. I hope you all stay on Facebook. In fact, I'll probably go back on tomorrow because I want to see, see pictures of my granddaughter and all that fun stuff. But I was so upset because you see so much hatred and it, it starts to grind you down. And I'll tell you, our country is, is filled with hatred. And you would think we had, would have moved past some of these things, but folks, we haven't. And God is in the business of restoring this world. And it's got to start with us. It's got to start in His church. The Christian people can't be the ones that are spewing out hate. Do you hear what I'm saying? We cannot be. And I, don't, you know, I don't care what any other church does, but this is my flock and you are my people and I am your pastor. And I'm telling you, if we don't stop the hatred and the venom that is going on, especially in politics, it is going to destroy not the United States of America, but the Christian church. We are losing our minds as Christians. And so I'm, I'm telling you very sternly that we must be the people that change. We must be the people that extend love and tolerance. And tolerance in the best sense. Not putting up with sin, but not grinding down everybody around us with judgment and hate. That has got to stop. Jesus was extremely intolerant of sin and wickedness. And He was as gentle as a lamb when it came to dealing with sinners and broken people. And if all we see out there is them and not us, what's going to happen to this world? If all we see is them and not us, take the moat, the little sticker, or the, the, the log, the beam out of your own eye before you try to take the little sticker, the little uh, flake of wood out of your brother's eye, Jesus said. And the church has become extremely judgmental and, and filled with anger and rage. And we try to satisfy these things with a multitude of what We think, well, you know, if, if, I'm, if I have more money, if I have more friends, if I have uh, a Supreme Court that's got the right kind of justices on it, if I have a president that I like, if I have this and if I... We go on and on and on with the things that we think are going to satisfy And he tells Joel, I will satisfy you. I will return the wine. You see, when when everything is going down under judgment, the people of God are to rise up and be what? Salt and light to the dark world. And if Jesus said, if the salt loses its savor, its saltiness, how will you ever salt it again? He's warning us that if we lose that which makes us different, then it's lost and it can't be gotten back. And so I'm encouraging at least this church, at least Christ the King, let's be different people. Let's be a different kind of people and speak in different language. The restoration of protection. Look at verse 20. I'll remove the northerner. He's talking about the locusts that, who knows, maybe they came, they were blown in by the north wind. I don't know. But northerner is usually an expression that refers to the enemies. Where Judah and Israel lay, the enemies usually came out of the north. Assyria, Babylon, the Medo-Persians, uh, all of these generally came out. Now sometimes they came from Egypt, but the enemies they feared the most were right there on their northern border. And so when he talks about this, he's talking about an enemy, and he said, I will remove them, I'll remove the enemy far from you. 
I'll drive them into the parched and desolate land, into the eastern sea. I'll complete the foul smell of them uh, will will uh, will rise up. People will know that I have brought judgment on them. In Malachi, he told his people, "I will rebuke the devourer for your sake." In Psalm 91, Moses said this: "Because you've made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge." No evil shall befall you. No plague come near your, your dwelling. He will command His angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. The, the restoration of protection. I heard someone say the other day, well, if we elect this person, I won't mention who they are. If we elect this person, uh, He will protect us. He will protect us. Now, good luck with that in the famous words of John Calvin. Finally, the restoration of the past. I will restore to you the years the swarming locust has eaten. My people shall never again be put to shame. I will restore to you the years... Think of the amount of energy that we spend. When, folks, when we have lost something and we try to restore it, the amount of energy, emotional, psychological, spiritual energy that we try to restore what we've lost, repair what we've done, do you realize how impossible it is to repair broken relationship, to restore a broken friendship or a broken family? It, it, it can become impossible. How do you restore? What do you do? What price do you pay? How much will it take? Will you be able to do it? And God comes with these words, I will restore the years. Whatever has been done, I will see to it that it is restored. And you will never again be put to shame. You see, there's, there's a component of shame that goes along with a loss of any kind. If it's a loss of relationship or friendship or a career or some kind of esteem through sin or mismanagement, whatever the case is, when we lose something and it's, uh, we're unable to restore it, what do we do about the shame, the embarrassment, the guilt that comes along with it? And he said, I will restore that. I will do something about it. Listen, this is so important for you to know. He redeems our past, but He does not undo the past. The pain and the hurt and the history of that brokenness is woven into, listen, woven into the fabric of our lives. In fact, it's the very thing that gives us cause for praise. You see, remembering our brokenness, remembering what we were and who we were, and how far I, I was blind, but now I see. I was deaf, but now I hear. I was a leper, but now I'm cleansed. You see, He never uh, erases the past. He redeems it and He weaves it into the fabric of your life so that it can be turned into worship and adoration. Why in the world are we going to be able to worship for all eternity? It's a long time, isn't it? How are we going to be able to do that? Because in heaven and on the new created, recreated earth, whenever that comes, but when you're in God's presence, 
you are forever going to be looking at His perfect beauty, holiness, and love, and justice, and the depths of your own sin. He's not going to blank out your mind. You're going to remember who you were. You're going to be looking at Him and His white robe is going to be splattered in blood. Your white robe is going to be completely clean. You're always going to be looking at a Savior whose nail-scarred hands are always nail-scarred hands. You'll always be seeing the past, but now in light of your present redemption. And it's what gives issue to our praise and our worship in heaven. He will not erase the past. He will redeem the past and weave it into the history of our lives. Brokenness, like I told you last week, brokenness and weakness actually become our strength. Our shame, our guilt is turned into dancing. See, we're rejoicing over something. And that something is a redeemed past and the beauty that God has taken something so ugly and so distorted and restored it and made it something beautiful. And when you see that, you will spend the rest of eternity glorifying God for those very things. And he says this in the verses 21 through 24. He says, fear not. Be glad. Rejoice. He tells every... He tells everybody and everything to do that. The land, he tells to rejoice. The beasts of the field, he says rejoice. And the people, he says rejoice. God is intending to recreate the cosmos in a way that it brings glory to Him where now it is is, is struggling under the burden of sin. It will be freed one day and recreated, and we will dwell on the land with the beasts of the field, and the trees of the field will clap their hands. Imagine what kind of a restored world that will be. It's beyond anything we can imagine. And then finally, those are the three ways he restores us, provision, our past, and, uh, and our protection. And then he gives us this assurance, and let me finish with this very quickly. How does God assure us um, of His love for us. He does it in two ways, the present and the future. Uh, Look at verses 26 and 27. The present and future worship. He says, you shall eat and be satisfied. And look, praise the name of the Lord your God. You shall know that I am in the midst of you. You know, every morning, uh, on Sunday morning, uh, I pray a special prayer that w- God will come into His temple. And don't, don't imagine that this building, as beautiful as it is, this is not the temple. The building is just a, a building. You are the temple of God. And I pray every Sunday morning, God, come into your temple. Inhabit the praises of your people. And make your presence known in the midst of us. Make your present known in the midst of us. And that's what he says. He assures us of his presence. You know, things are going to get bad over the next four years. Yes? I don't care who you vote for. It's going to get very bad in the next four years in the United States. And this is why. When people turn their backs on God, 
he gives them more and more evil rulers. Are you listening? Every generation has more and more evil rulers. And you've seen this throughout world history. It doesn't just happen in the United States. It happened in Europe. It's happened in parts of Asia. It's happened all over the world. When people turn their back on God, they get worse and worse rulers. And we're going to have worse and worse rulers. We have them right now. And we're going to get, we're, we got two coming that are going to be worse. And if you put your hopes and your dreams in politics and in, you know, hoping that, you know, one of these people is going to protect us and turn things around, you're going to be sorely disappointed. But if you put your hope in Jesus Christ, you will never be disappointed. No matter how good the ruler is, no matter how bad he is. Do you see? A stability, a rock solid stability can be in our hearts and lives. And I've been telling you now for months, almost a whole year, folks, that the hand wringing and the fear has got to end. Oh my gosh, people are we're scared to death. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? You shall eat and be satisfied and praise the name of the Lord your God and I will be in your midst. He promised that. In our darkest days, folks, He promises to be in our midst. And He also promises a present and future relationship. I am the Lord. Look at this. I am the Lord your God, and you are my people. He uses a possessive pronoun. I am your God, and you are my people. You're not just any people. You're not just Democrats or Republicans or Americans or Chinese or British. You're my people. And so whatever particular world we live in, whether it's the United States or Europe or Asia, We have citizenship there, but we have another citizenship God promises that we are His forever, long after the political establishments are gone. How does this restoration and assurance become reality to us? It's the cross of Christ, what I told you throughout the sermon. Listen to what John Calvin said. For in the cross of Christ, in the cross of Christ, as in a magnificent, splendid theater... The inestimable goodness of God is displayed to the whole world. In all the creatures, indeed both high and low, the glory of God shines, but nowhere does it shine more brightly than in the cross, in which there has been an astonishing, listen, an astonishing change of things. The condemnation of all men has been manifested. Sin has been blotted out. Salvation, salvation has been restored to us. In short, the whole world has been renewed and everything restored to good order. In the cross of Christ, When Jesus hung on the cross, all the guilt, all the shame, all the wrath of God, the anger that was due to you and I, all laid on Him. And all of His righteousness, all of His goodness, all of His beauty was transferred to us so that there would be a great, what we call a great reversal of things. 
And then He reaches out His hand and He says to you and me, all of us, you go into all the world and make disciples. It's time, if never before, folks, the 21st century right now, this cultural moment with uh, the the flames of, of racism and all of this stirring up again and hatred and political polarization that we have maybe never seen in this country, at least in our lifetimes. It's time for the Christian church to step up and be the light and salt to this world. Will you do it? Will you trust Him? I pray you will. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you. These are some hard times to live in. Lots of doubt and fear in all of us. And we really don't know what's going to happen with our country and with our world, with terrorism and political upheavals around the world and racism and hatred. And even in the church, God have mercy on us. The lack of faith and the fear and the anger that is raging, I pray that you will assuage that with the glory of the cross of Christ, our great King. Calm your church, Father. Give us the sweet peace that you promised that we might step up and be a different race of people, a different kind of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and that we would rally to the banner of our Lord Jesus to his cross and declare righteousness and justice. Let it flow down like rivers, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.